Welcome to Drinks at the Doll, Episode 20, Tamsin. You're listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast waystation for Lost Girl fans. I'm your host, Stephanie. And I'm Annie. And I'm Chris. And today we're discussing the newest addition to the Lost Girl gang, Tamsin. We are very happy to have back as a guest contributor, Melanie Killingsworth. Melanie works as a writer, producer, director, and editor for film and television. She has projects in various stages of completion, including Hulu's original series Battleground and her own noir film The Lilith Necklace. She blogs about film and television, including Lost Girl, at melsbells.wordpress.com. That's M-E-H-L-S-B-E-L-L-S, melsbells.wordpress.com, and at tvkeela.com, which is spelled like tequila, except with a V instead of an E. So thank you for being here, Melanie. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So let's see, because Tamsin's story arc became something of a self-destructive downward spiral in season three. The drink special for this episode is a kamikaze, which is a shot made with vodka, triple sec, and lime juice. So, cheers. Woo! Okay. I'm good. So I feel like it's always a little bit risky when TV shows decide to add new characters. They're changing the dynamic of the core group, and additional characters mean that there is less screen time for the other characters. But... I think it happens so often because writers, they don't want the show to get stale. They don't want the storylines to get stale. And adding in new characters can allow the writers to explore different facets of the existing characters. And hopefully the new character is interesting enough in their own right that they're just interesting. So sometimes adding a new character goes really well, like the addition of Olivia on The Cosby Show. Everybody thought she was adorable. But sometimes they are really disastrous, such as when they added Dawn on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm sorry to the three Dawn fans who are out there, but the majority of Buffy fans did not react well to her be added, being added to the cast. So no offense, M- Michelle Trachtenberg, you seem like a very nice person. So I would say that Tamsin is probably somewhere in the middle of that. I know there are fans who really like her, think she's really funny, kind of this tough new character. And then I know there are some fans who didn't like her as much and felt like she got a lot of screen time for a new character. And we're not really going to talk about that. Uh, We're not going to talk about sort of controversy around her addition. We are going to sort of take a very specific tact to talking about Tamsin. And it's because of Melanie's interest and knowledge of film noir, because coming from that background, she has a very specific viewpoint of Tamsin. So why don't you kind of explain, Melanie, why, what you see Tamsin as? Sure. So uh, one of the things that interests me about Tamsin is that she is, she's a noir detective, um, and it, it kind of, you get it, the idea in the first couple episodes, she has kind of the trappings. She's got a dark side, and she's literally dark fae. She's a detective, or a cop. She has this partner that she's not incredibly keen on. She goes head-to-head with some big, kind of dark, bad characters. You see her kind of in conflict with the Morrigan. So you see it kind of start to get set up in the first couple episodes that you see her in, and then it actually grows as the season goes on. The parallels grow, and she does things that are really indicative of a noir character. But the thing, the most obvious thing, where she is not indicative of a stereotypical noir detective is that she's a woman. 
and as a girl who has been interested in the noir genre for many years, but has a real problem with how women are often portrayed in noir, that really interests me. My film, specifically, I took a woman and I made her the noir detective because it drives me crazy how women in noir are always either the femme fatale, and so they're, they're sexual and they're bad and they're luring these, you know, detectives into, in some bad situation or they're like this innocent, virginal, kind of sweet but dumb character who usually just serves some other sort of purpose, uh, either to be wronged or to be killed or to, and you can kind of get deeper and deeper into it. But anyway, so I, I really like that Tamsin is a stereotypical noir detector other than her gender, because that allows her to play with the type somewhat and uh, to kind of flip it on its head. Quarantine failed at the city. Can't still be alive, can they? Oh, they're there. And they're causing all kinds of stinks, so we gotta take care of them. If you catch my drift. No, that was a little subtle. Maybe you could do it again with sound effects. So you, you've kind of gotten into this a little bit, but Okay, you're a big noir nerd, which is great, but why should the rest of us normal people care? <laughs> <laughs> so, even if, say you agree with me about Tanzan being a noir type, what, what, why does it matter? Well, I think it matters for a couple reasons. One, which I already got into a little bit, is that she does subvert that idea that in noir, women are always either meek or they're this evil sexual seductress. So she subverts that a little bit, which is always good to show, you know, that women are broad and able to play a full range of characters. But the other thing is that I, I mean, I believe in the power of story. And I think that every type, every element of a story should be represented by a broad spectrum of characters. I think superheroes, archvillains, everything should be represented at some point, you know, by every race, every gender. You should have queer characters, you should have all sorts of things, and so t when you see a strong woman playing this type that's almost always played by a man, it's it's changing the power of the story to include a larger group of people. Uh, so for myself, I remember growing. I remember when Veronica Mars came on, and I was just captivated because I had been a fan for so long of this type, but I wanted to be Sam Spade, but Sam Spade was really kind of nothing like me. So you see Veronica Mars, and that's someone who is like me. However, on TV right now, we don't really have that type. We don't really have a type that is, and I'll go into all the characteristics later, but who covers these types. We've had, you know, some strong women. You've got Scandal. Obviously, we have Lost Girl. You know, so you had kind of like the supernatural. You had superhero. You had all these other things. But I think it's really important for women to be shown in a wide variety of ways, and that Tamsin covers one of those, to me, iconic, huge, important groups of, of characters. Let's, let's get a little more specific about where you, see, where you see comparisons between Tamsin and noir detectives. So what are maybe some of the storylines or some of the th themes of Tamsin's storylines that you feel really are reflective of the noir genre? Well, first of all, Tamsin's storyline involves a lot of moral ambiguity, which is, first of all, really interesting, just in general. Moral ambiguity, to me, super interesting. But her storyline does involve a lot of moral ambiguity. She's dark, so when she comes on the scene, Dyson and Bo kind of react like, oh, well, you know, dark, bad. 
And this is something that I think the show, one of the reasons that the show actually brought Tamsin on to kind of play with that idea a little bit. Um, she doesn't always do the right thing. Certainly not. Uh, sometimes she doesn't even try to do the right thing. Does that make her an inherently bad character? Does that make her more or less interesting? Does that mean that we as an audience are supposed to side with her or not? And these are all kind of quandaries that the noir detective is supposed to bring up. Uh, the noir detective is morally ambiguous. He doesn't necessarily fit, and I, I know I said he because historically it's a he, but he doesn't necessarily fit one side or the other on, on a spectrum. Definitely operate in shades of gray. So that's an area where Tamsin has that theme that fits. Um, another is the theme of redemption. So noir heroes are don't often want to be redeemed. They're not striving for redemption, per se. They don't actively seek out redemption. But they always end up, sometimes grudgingly, redeeming themselves uh, through redeeming others. And this, it's hard to tell because Tamsin's arc hasn't finished. But this does seem to be the route that she's going to end up taking. She redeems herself by helping Bo redeem herself. She redeems herself when she chooses not to kill Bo in the season finale for 13. So she's she's got a rocky road, and she may not, I'm guessing, she may not ever end up fully redeemed. She's not necessarily going to end up as a paragon of virtue. And that's fine. And that's definitely a very noir hero sort of stance. Like, in the end, he may come out and he's the good guy because he's not entirely the bad guy. But his hands are definitely dirty and he's definitely still operating in shades of gray, even with some redemption. So I definitely see that uh, that redemption storyline in Tamsin's arc. And I think also in addition to her not killing Bo in Those Who Wander, you also have at the very end of that episode where she tries to run over that mysterious shadowy figure in the road, which she really seems to do because of Bo. Because he, supposedly, he was sort of controlling her, asking her to capture Bo using that little rune gra- glass thingy-majiggy, which she didn't didn't want to do, then kind of got coerced into doing, and then tried to do it, and then didn't do it. So I think definitely the way that her story left off at the end of season three, big possibility for her to redeem herself in some way. Yeah, the the entire rune glass plot is actually very noirish, not usually mystical within noir, but there's usually something where the cop has to decide with the information that, or the private eye, with the information that he has, whether or not he's going to sell somebody out, whether or not he's going to use, you know, the information and all this knowledge that he has to turn on someone or turn them into the cops or kill them or not directly kill them, but get them killed. And so that is... You just add a little bit of mysticism to a typical noir plotline, and that gives you that rune glass plotline. And just to jump back to what you were saying about sort of the moral ambiguity of Tamsin, I actually recently rewatched the episode in which she was introduced, which is episode 302, Subterfanian. And I was reminded how absolutely vile she was in that episode to Bo. She called her, I'd forgotten this, but she calls Bo an unaligned coos which maybe I was socialized a particular way, but in my world, that's like one step down from calling the woman the C word. And to have this character show up and call our heroine 
that word, very strongly setting her up as this antithesis, this foil to Bo, I believe. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nerd out for a minute. Go for it. We, we encourage that here. That is what we do, yes. <laughs> so in Noir, the man always has a disdain for women. I mean, he may use them for sex. He may sexually objectify them. He may even love them in a weird way. It's usually a weird or twisted way. But the man always has a casual treatment of or disdain for women. And that's kind of one of his hallmarks. There's a lot of issue. There's a lot of Freudian issues with men in noir. There's a lot of mommy issues. There's a lot of different sexism, misogyny, all of these things. And what's another interesting thing about Tamsin is how in, as a female embodying all of the male stereotypes, she rejects some of them and she also turns some of them on herself. So she loathes herself and so by embodying the noir type of loathing other women, she's also self-loathing in some ways. Some of the ways that she acts towards Bo in the beginning. And again, she gets a little less so as time goes on. But she, she talks about, for instance, when she talks about the dawning, she talks about things being harder for women. And that makes her very angry. And when she talks about women in or people in sexual ways like men do, you kind of get the feeling that she has really hardened herself towards certain aspects of femininity. Don't hold back, okay? Guys, we are so glad you're here. We are so lost. Take it easy, Meryl Streep. Go big or go home. Will you please help us? Say, do you guys know where the mall is? Don't be fooled. They're just like the others. Take them for the cells. Don't even get inside. Yeah, all we have to do is act like girls. Mm -hmm. Hi. Another great example is again in the season finale, where Bo and Tamsin are trying to sneak into Taft's compound. Bo tries to encourage her to put on this really, oh, we have no idea where we are. We're so lost kind of demeanor. And when they get hauled inside, Bo says, oh, I told you it'd work. And Tamsin replies, yeah, all we had to do is pretend we were girls or act like girls, I think is what she says. So this this very dismissive attitude toward her own sex. And it kind of, Tamsin kind of reminds me, there's this great book by Ariel Levy. If you like feminist polemics. I know there's probably two of you out there who might actually read this, but if you like feminist polemics, it's a really good book called Female Chauvinist Pigs. And she talks about how women, in order to sort of exist in a sexist society, will sometimes adopt these chauvinistic attitudes toward other women. And she talks about different categories and how it works exactly. But one of the categories she talks about is women who are employed in spheres that are mainly dominated by men. And definitely we see this in Tamsin, her being a police officer, and even a Valkyrie being in these environments that are normally dominated toward men. And in order to sort of fit in, they adopt these very chauvinistic attitudes toward women. Yeah, and I love the way that it works on two levels. So she's a Valkyrie who are historically, mythologically, operate entirely in a male sphere. And she's a cop who, uh, the realm of police officer is not just generally dominated by men, but very much not just allows, but encourages certain misogynist viewpoints. Femininity is weak, you know, there's all of the jokes that go around, all of the the things that they either demean or exalt are always about exalting the male and demeaning the female. 
And so for her to be on in both in her mythological realm and in her everyday work realm that the Fae put her in, as a woman in a historically male context is just really fascinating. And I love the way that they kind of play with that. And the way that she feels, because she understands what's going on, even though she tries to reject certain feminine aspects of herself, she knows that just because of her chromosomes, she has to act twice as tough. You know, pouring the coffee on Dyson's desk at the beginning. Heck, the very first time we see her swaggering into a boxing gym, making remarks about guys, and then putting the gloves on and stepping in the ring. She knows that she has to assert herself, essentially as a man, to be accepted in these realms. And it's interesting because I did bring up the comment that she made about, oh, we have to pretend to be girls, which does kind of sound a little bit chauvinistic, but I think it also reflects some awareness of their place as sort of second-class citizens. And and she does make other comments, like you mentioned in the when she talks about the dawning, this sort of attitude of it's really unfair, that it's harder for women. And she also, when we first see her in the second episode, Dyson referring to her as being Dark Fae, says, I've learned not to sort of trust people on your team. And she challenges him and says, do you mean Dark Fae or women? So even though she does sort of exhibit these more chauvinistic attitudes, sexist attitudes toward women, there is awareness in her that's revealed that, you know, she recognizes as a woman, she is oppressed to a certain extent. Definitely. And she's angry about it. She's not just going to take it and lay down. She's very angry about it, and she's going to fight back physically. She's going to fight back verbally. She's going to fight back psychologically. And uh, she does so pretty effectively as well. And yet she doesn't... And I want to be careful here because I do not think that women need to make themselves sexually desirable, whether they are or are not hard-boiled noir types. So I'm not I'm not trying to say that, but I do think that it's it is important that for the most part in film and TV and books, when women are presented as being hard boiled, kind of wise ass, tough, playing with the guys, they're also not generally presented as sexually desirable. They are presented as these kind of uh, crones, or they're presented as someone who is oh well we could be friends, but there's not. You know, that no one would ever desire them sexually. So while it's never good to say that women need to be sexually desirable for whatever reason, I love that she can be a wise-ass, she can be hard-nosed, she can be bitchy. And I mean that in the way that it's generally used as a pejorative, but it's not, in her case, seen as anything that does make her undesirable. She's still sexually attractive, she's still obviously desirable in multiple ways. She's still interesting. She does, despite herself, manage to still have friends. Um, So it's never that defining characteristic that, oh, because you're these things, then you can't also be sexual. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case where those type of characters usually aren't they're kind of like the, the, the sidekicky, best friend, desexualized characters who are never going to have a romantic love interest ever. And while I will say for me personally, Tamsin comes off as a little asexual. She doesn't really, to me, seem to be all that interested in sex and relationships. References to Mr. Eight Pack in one episode aside. Uh, but she, she is obviously a very attractive character. She can be very sexy. 
Well, two points. I mean, she doesn't have to be... The noir detective, in fact, is not always very sexually interested. Plenty of phrases to notwithstanding. But, yeah, what I was talking about is not necessarily that she does She does not have to be sexually sexually active. She just has to be an object of sexual desire. Because I do often see her as asexual or quasi-sexual, which is also kind of a noir male stereotype. Um, he's he's usually very impassive, but he uses terms like, for instance, he talks about women in relation to their physical. He talks about women in relation to their physical attributes. So he would refer to a woman as quote a pair of getaway sticks, which is exactly how she refers to the guy that she's about to go see. She doesn't use his name. She doesn't refer to him as a person. She refers to him as a really great six pack. Or I'm sorry, she refers to him as an eight pack. I believe. Yeah, Mr. Eight Pack. Yeah, so she's, she's again, carrying on that noir tradition is referring to someone who she should and may be sexually attracted to as a list of attributes. Okay, well, I have a really hot date with a guy rocking an eight-pack in an hour, so maybe we can hurry this up a little. Hey, Magnifico! You know this is stupid, right? So we've talked about a couple of her noir-related themes so far. We've talked about her as a morally gray character. We've talked about her as a character needing redemption. Are there any other major themes that really parallel well with noir characters? Another one of her themes is that she acts as kind of a dark counterpart to many other established characters. And that's that's the thing that noir detectives do uh, with all of the people that they are opposing or chasing or kind of matching wits with. They may be alcoholics, for example, but they don't beat children like the guys that they're after. They may be womanizers, but they don't rape and kill women like a lot of the people that they're chasing. They may knife a guy in a back alley. They're completely fine with killing somebody, but hey, they didn't start it. So they act as kind of this counterpart that takes bits and pieces of who they're playing against into their personality. And Tamsin does this as well. She acts as a dark counterpart to most of the other main characters. So, you know, you've got kind of Dyson the tough guy, and you've got Tamsin who kind of plays this I-don't-really-care sort of attitude, and she is But Dyson is very noble in his being the tough guy. Right, yeah, and Tamsin is totally out for herself. Like, oh, does this suit me? All right. So I'll just stand here and watch you jump off the roof, then whatever. Whereas Dyson, he doesn't act afterwards like it affects him, but he's still trying to stop it in the meantime. So then you've got Kenzie, who's, you know, really kind of snarky, and then you've got Tamsin, who is much more biting. You know, she's not necessarily joking when she says it. It's more of a, uh, just kidding, no, really. So she kind of acts as that as that counterpart and shows kind of the flip side of other characters, which is really interesting, even though she's kind of moderate. But I, I do have a list of, of main comparisons and minor comparisons. She's ambiguous. We've talked about her moral ambiguity. She has a past which is very unclear. It, it gets referenced several times, but it's unclear. She is transient. She doesn't really have any roots. She kind of seems to move from place to place. She doesn't seem to have family. She is a highly functional alcoholic, which is job requirement for a noir detective. Though maybe a little less functional by, functional by the end of season three. She, uh, I mean, most noir detectives at some point drink the entire bottle of gin and slur some words, but then they're still capable of, you know, letting down their hair and killing a guy. Okay, so maybe it's not quite one-to-one. 
but she's a, she's a highly functional alcoholic. She verbally reduces her dates to a physical laundry list, like an 8-pack. She is snarky and abrasive, to the point of literally pushing people to the brink. Uh, she's perfectly capable of physical violence, and she uses it to demasculate and disparage other people. Um, so whereas a noir detective would mostly use it to emasculate others to promote their own maleness or malehood, she emasculates others to put them on the same level as herself. So, I am woman, you are man, well, we're equal. But they both do use it as a weapon. Um, her power is doubt, which is pretty much the noir detective's greatest weapon. Like, noir detectives are all very much good at playing on the doubts of others and planting doubt and manipulating people through doubt. So that's that's a pretty big one. Um, she's not really likable, and I don't mean that lots of people don't like her, because lots of people do like her, but it's kind of despite herself, and that's very much a noir detective thing. I mean, I love Sam Spade as a character, but I would not want to be friends with him in real life. Right, I think, I think that people who like the character, they like her from a distance. She's an entertaining person to watch. But I think if they were confronted with her and heard some of those barbs directed at themselves, I don't know that people would necessarily want to be Tanzan's friend if that's how she's presenting herself at that moment. Right. And that's that's very much how most noir characters operate. Really interesting characters, not so much great people. And then there's some also minor comparisons, and some of these are a little more incidental. But she's got Dyson, so she has a partner with that she's friendly on a superficial level, they work together, and they've got this weird mutual respect animosity going on, especially at the beginning of season three, although there's this potentially developing romantic attachment, which kind of fits under how Tamsin is a female, maybe plays with the noir trope a little. But uh, usually a noir partner, there's that sort of animosity that you saw at the very beginning of season three where they she pours the coffee on his desk and she snarks at him and she's trying to go behind his back to get things accomplished and they're arguing about how to treat a suspect, that sort of thing. Um, she lets a prisoner loose on a hunch. That has started several noir films um, where you have kind of a detective letting somebody or trying to break somebody out of jail so they can get to the real story, which is what she does with Bo in um, The Kinsey Scale. So that's exactly what she does there. There's this weird, I'm going to stand on this personal principle until it gets someone killed and or gets someone's hand cut off with Acacia, since oh. we don't know if she's actually dead. The cutoff hand was definitely a very noir thing for me, because very out of these gangster films where some sort of loved one, you know, gets a body part in the mail from somebody else, and they think, oh my gosh, that was very, reminded me of a lot of... It's a little neo-noir, mostly because yeah. old noirs couldn't have gotten away with showing something like that. But yeah, exactly. It's very, very much that. And then it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to stand on that principle anymore. There's no concept of other people's personal space. And this is this may become a major one, we'll have to see, but like the way that she moves into Lauren's house, I know that most people were aghast at that, but you should be. And that's exactly how a noir detective would operate. Like, I don't really have a place. Oh, hey, there's this place. She's not using it. I may as well. I'll use her bathrobe. I'll use her shower. Like, no concept of personal space whatsoever. Like, they'll just walk into your house. It's kind of how they operate. There's this thinly veiled defiance of a controlling mob boss. She kind of refuses to play the Morrigan's game. Like, I realize you own me, but I'm going to to very subtly 
subvert that, and I'm just gonna, like, look you in the eye when I do it, and then walk away. Cause I'm a noir detective badass. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's that whole thing. You know, again, with, like you said, the mob boss, which is kind of how the Morgan operates in relation to Tamsin. And there's this obsession with comprehending the morality of others, whether or not they emulate the morality. And this kind of brings us around to my next big point, which is how Tamsin operates in relation to Bo. So noir detectives, when they have that kind of innocent virginal female, or even a guy who really does kind of have these principles and manages to keep them in a dark city full of crime, they're always fascinated by that person's morality. And they they try to get up close, and they try to inspect it, and they try to understand it, and it puzzles them. And they, they may or may not try to emulate it, and sometimes they try to emulate pieces of it, and sometimes they just admire it, and are like, well, it just can't be for me. But that's definitely something that is in a lot of different noir stories, and that, I believe, is why Tamsin is so fascinated with and so inextricably linked to Bo. So before I move on to Bo, because I think there's a lot to say about that relationship, I did want to go back and when you mentioned in your main comparisons, you talked about reference to no family. And this is just sort of an incidental aside. But I'm kind of a little confused slash curious because there was this interview done with the cast of Lost Girl in between, right before season three started. And it was done by The Gate, which is a Canadian publication. And it's available online. You can go watch it. And in this interview, the interviewer mentioned to Rachel Rachel Scarston, how awesome was it that Linda Hamilton came on the show to play your mother? And nobody corrected him. And as we saw in the episode where she guest starred playing Acacia, there was definitely an indication that she and Tamsin had a history together, they knew each other, but there was no indication, at least I thought, that they were in any way related. It's possible that maybe we have seen Tamsin's family member, but don't know it. But it's also possible that maybe they scrapped that element of the story on, you know, it got lost in the editing room floor. I don't know. If that is true, and again, it's kind of an incidental and this is more for fun. So there's this book called In a Lonely Street, Film Noir Genre and Masculinity. And the author talks about a lot of noir detectives having mommy issues. It's it's a little more in-depth than that. But it talks about how a lot of issues with their parents, specifically their mothers, lead them towards their various personality traits and how they interact with women and how they're always trying to either find or reject their mothers through the women that they interact with, etc., etc. So it would kind of be interesting for Tamsin to have also mommy issues, which is a running theme in Lost Girl, which is great because there's daddy issues, which get kind of done to death, and then there's mommy issues, which are also interesting. And although can also get done to death. So it would be kind of interesting as an incidental. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Stuff like that just makes me curious. Yeah, I really hope that Lyndall Hamilton comes back. I really feel like they didn't do nearly as much with her as they could have. So I really hope we see her again because we don't know. She might not be dead. You can lose a hand and still be alive. A note from the editing room. Since this episode was recorded, we did actually learn in a press release from Prodigy Pictures that Lyndall Hamilton will be returning in season four of Lost Girl in some capacity. I personally, I don't think she's dead. I think she and the first Ash are hiding out somewhere. (laughs) 
Nobody dies when you're Fae. Don't we know this? This is a fantasy sci-fi trope. Oh, you do die, though. Well, yeah. And then you piss off all the fans, but no. Um, (laughs) But I think it's perfectly normal, given Tamsin's you know, functionality slash dysfunctionality as a as a noir type trope that she does have mommy issues because where do you think her lack of ambitions comes from, her, you know, lack of respect for personal space and her brashness. Something had to have happened in her very long, long past throughout her long lifetimes that made her the way she was and yet attracts her to Bo when she says, You're unlike anybody I've known in all my lifetimes. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty safe to say, even if Acacia is not supposed to be her her literal physical mother, that that metaphorically, she and her mommy issues stem from Acacia. Where do you get off being so perfect? Think you've seen everything, and then you see you. I'm all right, but I'm not perfect. Yes, you are. To me, you are. And I think kind of where Annie left off is a great segue back into talking about Tamsin in relation to Bo. I personally was actually really surprised that that emerged as Tamsin's predominant relationship on this series. There really seemed to be when they introduced the character, setting her up to maybe be a potential love interest for Dyson. And it just did not go that way at all. So what did you think, Melanie, about sort of how that relationship developed between Tamsin and Bo? So more than anything else that I've talked about in the past, this is kind of be more how I read things. You know, I can kind of draw parallels. And if you want me to call out specific noir stories that look exactly like Tamsin's, I could probably do that. And this one, it's a little more about how I read her uh, relationship with Bo. And I don't read it as overtly sexual. For a couple of reasons, and I know I'm going out on a limb here, the show's not over, it can still develop. Heck, I was the person who said that Bo and Tamsin had metaphorical sex in the finale last season, and I, I, they did. With the injection, we should, we should specify. The syringe, yeah, with the syringe and the plunger and the O-faces and the glittery That's sparkles. metaphorical sex in fae terms, you know. Sucking of chi means a lot in this world. So, so, yeah, and, and I think that you can say that characters have metaphorical sex because it's fun and enjoyable and it's a fun little thing to throw in without actually having to say that the relationship is innately sexual, inherently sexual, overtly sexual, whatever you want to call it. But I personally don't read their overall relationship as sexual. Um, I think that there is a very intense connection, and I think that Tamsin longs to be intimate with Bo in the same way that she sees Kenzie being intimate with Bo. Uh, I'm not saying that she is actually going to try to to off Kenzie or take Kenzie's place, but she sees that close, uh, intense friendship, and she respects Bo very much. I mentioned before the noir tendency to be a little bit obsessed with somebody's morality, and she's she's very much obsessed with Bo that way, and she's fascinated, and she's captivated, and she's interested, and she's very longing 
for that. And it's it's easy to conflate that longing with sexual longing, and I'm not saying that everybody who reads it as sexual longing is wrong. I'm just saying that I don't personally see it that way. I do read some of their interactions as sexy. I mean, you know, you have two women who are good-looking and they're hanging out in this mystical fey world and there's this weird literal kind of spark and then they kiss. Okay, you know, that's sexy. But it doesn't have to be sexual and it doesn't have to take their entire relationship to a sexual place. Also, I mean, while we're as an aside... Showcase slash sci-fi knows exactly what they're doing by promoing these sorts of things that heavily. You know, you have these women kissing, you have two women in a bathtub, that stuff sells, they're gonna promo the crap out of it. So, I understand that, and that's... It is what it is, but it still doesn't change my idea that their relationship is intense. Tamsin wants the relationship to be intimate, but it's not Well, I tend to agree, because... I think, I, I really agree with what you said, Melanie, in the word of longing. Tamsin wants to belong to, you know, what we fondly refer to as the Scooby-Doo gang. That's a Buffy reference, Annie. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know that's the Buffy reference. I know, I know earlier these guys were shaming me for not being a Buffy fan and not having watched it. Xena fan through and through. I'm sorry about that aside. I think Tamsin, all throughout the season... She sees what these this group has, you know, that includes human, that includes Faye, and she wants that. And it's what attracts, you know, what attracts Bo to so many people. It's also the unaligned fact. Bo doesn't have to answer to the Morgan. Bo doesn't have to be under orders from, you know, the Wanderer, as Tamsin may or may not be. And, you know, especially in that bathtub scene, I think Tamsin is just so wanting to understand Bo and wanting to feel what she feels. I mean, literally, because I think Tamsin, she wants to feel things. She wants to be emotional. She wants to have a Lauren, a Kenzie, a Dyson in her life and that kind of emotional connection. But I think she's so stunted by all the horrors she's experienced and all the armies she's had to put down, which she refers to in her Valkyrie days, and, you know, who knows what mommy and daddy issues she's gone through. She doesn't know how to connect to people, and it starts to emerge with Bo, and she just doesn't know what to do with it, and I think she's still going to explore that. Do I necessarily see that as a sexual relationship? I I personally don't, but uh, I know a lot of Valkybus fans do, and that's fine with them. People can take what they want to take, so I'm just... As I referenced earlier, I'm fascinated to see where that character goes and where her emotional journey goes, more than just her snarky badassness, because I know that's all a cover for this very deep longing and wanting to belong underneath. I actually do agree with you, uh, Annie, about, like, especially the bathtub scene, that sort of thing, really reads to me like like Timson's jealous of Bo. Je- Timson kind of wants to be Bo, essentially. Wants to have that, uh, have the things in her life that, that Bo has in hers. I think the episode that really sets up Tamsin's art for the rest of the season is you, you look at the Kenzie scale. And what do we see in that episode? We see Tamsin sort of recognizing how much Kenzie means to Bo, the links that Bo is willing to go in order to rescue her. And she makes a remark, you know, my friends wouldn't, you know, cross the street to help me, essentially. And Bo tells her, you need better friends. And I think that really 
ends up being kind of an eye-opening experience for her because not only does Bo come and rescue Kenzie, Dyson shows up in the inn to try to find Kenzie. And then the episode kind of, for, for Tamsin anyway, kind of concludes, actually this might be in the middle, I apologize, where Tamsin is talking to the Morrigan and the Morrigan basically is insinuating she's gone soft. She's become a little too friendly with these people. And Tamsin says very pointedly, I'm not one of them. And the way that she says it, I think to me, the way that that moment is played is she wants to be one of them. She feels like the outsider and she doesn't like it. She wants that relationship that the rest of them have. Now grow a conscience on me now. I read your rap sheet. This little errand is right in your wheelhouse. You give me too much credit and you don't give me enough. I hope you haven't fallen in love with the happy sunshine gang on your exchange program with the light. I am not one of them. That's right. Your loyalties lie with me. I think it's that episode, too, where Tamsin actually takes Bo to go meet the, what they call Kitsune, but Kitsune. Because, of course, the entire point of that was, like, basically, this is the closest that Tamsin has to friends, and they're entirely sort of frivolous characters, so, you know. The way that they treat her, the way the Kitsune treat her, is so different than near the end when Kenzie and Bo are reunited and then Dyson kind of comes into the picture. She's What she sees there is a surrogate family. And the relationship that Kenzie has forged with Bo and the relationship that Kenzie has forged with Dyson and the relationship, whether or not it's romantic, that all three of them will always have as this kind of surrogate family is... Tamsin is very jealous of and she's very... Whether she would say it or not, she's very longing. You can kind of see it when she's over to the side and the three of them are kind of in this huddle and she knows that she doesn't have a place there and she doesn't have anyone she could do that with. Well, yeah, I I see that. I love that shot at the end when Kenzie is rescued and, you know, she's hugging Dyson and Bo and the camera just pushes in on Tamsin and the look on her face, you know, it's a fantastic bit of acting from Rachel. She's just like, I'll never have that. I don't know what that's like. I'll never belong, you know, to have that kind of a friend. And there's, that's what uh, the brilliance in Rachel's acting. There's so many moments like that in season three where you see that conflict on Tamsin's face of, I don't know where I belong. I don't know what to do with these emotions that keep coming up, but I know I want to be around these people, but I don't know how to act around them. I'm being pulled in all these different ways, you know, from my loyalty to the dark and I'm supposed to betray Bo and kill her at the end, but what do I do? And everything you said about the weird social awkwardness and that inability to understand, this is why noir detectives do not work well in long-term relationships. They have sex, they may have a girlfriend for a short period of time, two or three, but they just generally have affairs. Um, They don't work well in long-term relationships, and I also personally believe that were Tamsin and Bo to end up having sex, that especially if they continue Tamsin's storyline, as I see it, as kind of this noir type, that it wouldn't work between the two. Then Tamsin would just exacerbate all of Bo's worst qualities. She would encourage kind of all of the... And I, I know I can hear the screams from the from the ah, back of the fans. I'm, I'm sorry, and I love you, and yes, no, please, I see what you're saying. please come and... 
tell me on my blog why I'm wrong and why it would totally work and I will listen to you, I promise, but I, as I see it, the noir detective, she's kind of doomed to never be able to function properly in a long-term relationship, and especially with Bo, she and Bo exacerbate each other's worst qualities, which is fascinating as a story. It just doesn't work for a long-term romantic relationship. So I still, obviously there are still several unanswered questions about Tamsin. And my big unanswered question that I have, besides sort of her background, is I still don't really understand what she does in delinquence. So Tamsin is collecting all the hairs to go into the rune glass bottle, right? And we see her go to Lauren's apartment, and Lauren's all preoccupied and blah, blah, blah. And then Tamsin gets a hair. And then she's just so mean to Lauren, just rubbing it into How Lauren's face that... dare her. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's biased. <laughs> Flaming right here. <laughs> so she totally rubs it in Lauren's face that she and Bo kissed and it wasn't a feeding and blah, blah, blah. I don't understand why she did that, really. And so I'm wondering if all of us gather here together, if any of y'all have any theories. I don't know. I think it could just, again, be the... She wants to understand Lauren. Why is this human in the world of the Fae? Why is she so attracted to Bo? And a lot of, you know, some Docubus fans see that as the straw that broke the camel's back as to why um, Lauren decides to, you know, initiate the break later in the episode. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think... I Believe it or not, I don't think Tamsin does anything without intent. She's very smart. So she had some intention behind that, um, besides just being mean. You know, she, again, she's such a layered character that that, but she's so brash and just unapologetic at the same time. That's her way of trying to figure Lauren out, maybe. Of going, yeah, this is what I did with Bo. You know, this because I'm trying to figure you guys out. I don't understand why Bo is with you as a human. You know, that could just be part of her. You know, she might just want to get a reaction out of Lauren just to see what is going on. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of a mystery, but I don't think Tamsin does anything without just completely thinking it through, without some kind of ulterior motive and trying to figure out her own emotions. I kind of always wondered if it was some, like, a manifestation of her own self-loathing or something. You know what I mean? Like, like I want to make somebody mm -hmm. mad at me. Like, I want to, you know. That's a very faith thing to That's do. That's true, because at that point, she was, against her will, kind of going along with collecting these materials for the rune glass. So maybe that was just a, I hate myself, and I want to make somebody else feel badly right now. And slap me really hard. That feels good. And then she yeah. goes, yeah, I guess I deserve that. And she's still got this look on her face. And she's going, yeah, I did deserve that, because I don't have what you have, Lauren. I don't have this relationship with Bo that I you know, want to find out more about, you know, give it to me. I don't care. She could have flattened Lauren in that moment. You know, she's a phase. She could have killed her. But, you know, she just takes it because she feels, yeah, I agree with you. She feels she deserves it. And she looks pleased after she gets slapped. Well, I think, again, that's part of why I was maybe thinking that. She's like, yep, I did it. I came here to piss you off, and that's what I did. I, I, I think there's kind of three... I tend to do things in, in lists, in groups of three, so I apologize. I was raised Baptist. We like lists of three. 
But the f- the first thing is that it's a very male thing for her to do. Very, very male. In fact, everything she does in that entire episode is very male. The way that she goes and bonds with Acacia over beer and war stories, the way that she acts as a cop, the way that she literally taunts Lauren like, hey, I kissed your girl, she liked it, and let's like get f- like come to physical blows over this. It's all very, very male. So that's kind of a manifestation of, like, what we were talking about earlier, her, as a woman, taking all of these different roles in a man's world. The second thing is that I thought it fits again, and I kind of see everything through my lens of seeing her as a noir character, but a lot of noirs, you'll see the detective going to different parties who are kind of involved in saying or doing things that don't make sense until the end, until the denouement, and we really haven't gotten there yet. We're not going to get there until some point in season four. And so the things that she says and does with Massimo and or Lauren, I think are going to get explained later, kind of in that, you know, a lot of noirs will have that closing scene where the detective doesn't always explain it, but the audience kind of sees, oh, I see where all of these parts came together. So my viewing it that way makes me think that we definitely haven't seen the actual reason for her up until this point. The third thing is I lean towards the theory of she does it because she's desperately trying to abide by the letter of the law, without actually abiding by the spirit of it. That being, once she finally is like, okay, I'm going to do this whole glass rune thing, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to really subtly try to subvert it the whole time. So he can't get mad at me, but I'm going to hopefully try to throw a monkey wrench in here somewhere to kind of, either because she's trying to walk both lines, kind of like walk the line on both sides and, and, and... play that character or because she really is trying to not harm Bo. That was my other idea was that perhaps somehow she thought it would make that rune glass contraption not work. But because she definitely, definitely is trying to push Bo and Lauren apart. So perhaps her idea was if I can push Lauren to the part, to the point where they break up, maybe that will lessen Bo's feelings for her and that will make Lauren no longer somebody she loves or something like that. It's, it doesn't always have to make sense. People don't always make sense. Noir detectives certainly don't always make sense. But I, I am kind of interested to see if they explain it at all. You know how that Tamsin kind of wavered in that episode. She throws, she gets some of the hairs and tries to throw the rune glass out and then it gets mailed back to her with Acacia's hand and how horrified she is at that, realizing, oh, I'm in deep shit. I have to finish this anyway. And then at the end of the season with the rune glass not working, I'm sitting there going, well, you know, did Tamsin still, you know, sabotage it somehow based on her we can't still figure out, she can't still figure out feelings about Bo? You know, so I really want to know why that rune glass didn't work. Not to nitpick any, but... But she's going to. I totally am. I'm not convinced that the rune glass thing didn't work. Okay, why? Because we don't... We never found out what it was supposed to do. Yeah, but it just fizzled. It didn't do anything. And then they had to fight old-fashioned style, which I think was just... uh, I think the rune glass not working was just an excuse to have a a fight on screen between Tamsin and Bo that the (laughs) writers have been building up to because people wanted to see it. (laughs) We don't know that it didn't work, though, because 
again, here's here's my weird argument. The the wanderer didn't show up until after the rune glass thing happened. And he's apparently super powerful, so why wouldn't he have shown up unless that's what the rune glass was intended to do? That's a good point. Is my theory. Have you commented on my blog at all? I have not. I don't okay, think then anyway. at least one other person holds that theory because somebody was on my blog positive, and I hadn't thought about that until then, but somebody on my blog made a very strong argument for that. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Have you always been a litterbug? Excuse me? Do you always leave your food around for other people to clean up? So what's this about? No, I, I didn't. Didn't what? No feeding off of other fae was punishable by death? No, this looks like my feed, but I haven't... Well, stop talking. Did you know that he was a dark fae when you sucked him dry like a little crab leg? Detective. What am I going to do with you? I don't know that everybody gets as super into noir as I do. I I love the type. I love the fact that we have a woman embodying the type. I love the fact that... When you do that, you can play with lots of things. And personally, everything that I see about Tamsin's storyline potential in the future is through my mirror of her as a noir character. And so that, too, is probably why I possibly come to some different conclusions of people. It's always also difficult for... I'm kind of sticking this out there, and maybe next season who someone will write her an episode who doesn't see her that way at all, and she's just going to... So it's it's a little bit risky, but I think her very personality and everything that she's done up to this point is, and it, it makes her an iconic type. And we have so few of those specifically for women, I mean, let alone if you're like a queer minority woman, heaven forbid. But I think that it's, it's super important, and I think that I really like that it's a iconic character who's not inherently good or inherently evil. She's not a superhero. She's not a detective. She's not a leader of the underworld like the Morrigan. She's very complex, and she's kind of occupying a space of moral ambiguity and complexity and this um, weird sort of longing that is usually reserved for men. And I really love that we get a strong female character in in this realm. Well, I wanted to agree and say that I really do like and I'm fascinated with the character of Tamsin. And I know that's hard for some people to believe, given my docubus bias. But I think it's just because, yeah, what you said, she is so layered and has so much going on under that snarky, you know, sometimes frozen grin that... I think if people just see her initially as, oh, she's just here to break up the ships or just to go with Dyson or just to break up Lauren and Bo or Lauren and Kenzie, that I think that's only on the surface. You know, she has such a fascinating journey ahead of her. I want to see where all of that is going to go in terms of she has so much pain underneath her expression. And especially in that bathtub scene with Bo, like I, ref you know, we were talking about earlier that I want to see where she's going to go and what her decisions will be based on this new emerging emotion in her. You know, like I said, she doesn't know what to do with it. And that's why I find her, I find her honestly the most fascinating character in Lost Girl because she is 
I mean, a lot. I know a lot of characters in Lost Girl are underdeveloped, but she's still one of the most underdeveloped in terms of, I want to know where all of this came from. You know, where all of her emotional kind of frozenness came from and why she acts the way she does. We see hints of it, but there's still such a long way to go. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing to what's going to be revealed about her through her actions and through other people if they know her, if they go into her background uh, in Season 4. I'm also really looking forward to it. My kind of personal hope is that they give her the, uh, the happy ending without a happy ending, which is very befitting a noir character, where she kind of has this... Uh, her very own sort of redemption. Um, not not a typical redemption, but a redemption nonetheless, and that she she definitely gets uh, some resolution to what she's searching for. So I think that's a great place to wrap up. I wanted to say thank you again to Melanie for being our guest on the show. We always like having you. Well, thank you very much for, for having me back. If they keep having you back, eventually they'll ask you to be a co-host. It's true. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for that sort of level of commitment here. I'm going to be the noir detective and just have some affairs. (laughs) (laughs) Affairs with drinks at the doll. (laughs) It's a spinoff podcast. It's mature rated. (laughs) Thank you again to Melanie for being our guest. You can read more of Melanie's thoughts. And Valcubus fans, you can tell her why she's totally wrong about Bo and Tamsin being a bad pairing over at melsbells.wordpress.com. That's M-E-H-L-S-B-E-L-L-S, melsbells.wordpress.com, or at tvkeela.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at melsbells. If you're interested in learning more about film noir, Melanie has provided a list of books and films that are good starting places. Those will be listed in the show notes for this episode, episode 20, over at drinksatthedoll.com. Let us know what you think about Melanie's take on Tamsin as a noir detective, or what your read on Tamsin is. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode, or you can send us a voice message through your computer or mobile device by clicking on the Send a Voice Message link at the end of the show notes. You can also email us at feedback at drinksatthedoll.com, or call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We have a couple more episodes left in our series about the main characters of Lost Girl, but come on, Hale lovers, we really need one of you to step up here and be a guest on our upcoming show about Hale. I know you're out there, because how can you resist his adorable smile? I mean, come on. There will be information about how to become a guest contributor in the show notes for this episode, episode 20, over at drinksatthedoll.com. I'm so glad you could join us for Drinks at the Doll. I'm Stephanie. Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. Cheers.